Welcome into episode 18 of All In with Adam. I'm here with uh, my buddy Sage. How are you doing, sir? Doing great, man. How are you? I'm doing awesome, man. We uh, we had a pretty sweet podcast. Um, what was it? <laughs> Seven or eight months ago? Yeah, it was definitely it was definitely a minute ago now. Winter somewhere in there. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, I thought we had an awesome conversation. I re-listened to it. Sorry, I'm just adjusting your volume here. Um, I re-listened to it. Uh, this morning a little bit, a lot of cool topics we covered, man. It was um, it was a fun episode. And how, yeah. how is your podcast going? Uh, it's 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 on it's on pause right now. I like to I like to uh, justify it by calling it season season two is coming. <laughs> sure. Season one ended, but um, yeah, I just uh, sort of wanted to uh, re. Uh, well, so admittedly, when I first started it, I'm like a stutterer. I'm all kinds of like awkward. So I was like, oh, I'm going to be terrible at this. I was like, my my first goal was just do it prove to myself that I can do it and then reassess so I think like I did the initial burst of episodes and topics I wanted to you know talk about and then um I think I kind of hit a wall with it where I just like wasn't sure where I wanted it to go next like how I wanted to grow it so I kind of paused it uh as you know like COVID's very much not over but there was like a little bit of relief and some you know work came back and things like that so I got kind of caught up in people being able to see me in the real world again and <laughs> uh, kind of got distracted. But yeah, hoping to jump back into that sometime in August for sure. Sure. It's always sketchier in the very beginning. I'm, I'm dealing with that in this podcast because you, you know, if there's if there's like a dud of an episode and it's it's buried in a library of 200 episodes, that's not that big of a deal. But if it's in your first 10 or 20 episodes, you know, I always feel like people are watching extra carefully, like this might Absolutely. be made up, but like they're trying to decide if this is worth their time. And it's like, oh, I don't want to let you down right in the beginning because I promise it's like, you know, what you see in your head is going to be awesome, but For you don't sure. want to like, uh, want, want to blow it too early, you know? Yeah. I definitely fell into the trap of like second guessing, like, should I take this episode down kind of thing? And that I was like, ah, it's all you you got to be all in, no pun intended. <laughs> like, you yeah, got to kind of be no, all in. That's why this name came up, <laughs> yeah. just to fucking do it, right? There's really no way to ease into it or dip a toe in. Um, how was it for you? Because you had a lot of experience speaking in front of a camera, obviously, for years. Was it weird pivoting to a personal level suddenly, or did you feel more exposed? Definitely more exposed, but that, that part is a little more comfortable. I think it got, what got old for me in in drum world, and there's there's probably a good amount of people listening that don't, if they haven't listened to all the episodes on this podcast, they might not know that I have a, another YouTube career like separate from this. And what got frustrating there was having to try and share things with a, a market of people that I really care about, which is really just young men, right? Like I, I care about that particular mm -hmm. demographic of people like myself and you 10 years ago, like we were pretty fucking dumb and it would have been awesome to have slightly older men to tell, you know, tell us some things. Um, and so speaking to that audience, but having to filter everything through the prism of drums, right. that got that got really frustrating because there are some really helpful, cool things that I've learned or figured out that have nothing to do with drums at all. And sort of one of the reasons I like your your project, probably oversharing, that's the name of the the podcast, by the way, for those listening. But uh, one Shut of the reasons up. I like it is because it's it like tiptoes in music, but not exclusively like. You very when you talk about mental health, you very quickly get outside of the music realm, and man, I just I tried to do that so hard in so many different ways on my drum platform, 
But there's limits where it's like, if you're not talking about drums or music at all, like this isn't really compatible with that whole brand, right? It's gotta, it's gotta yeah. be tied to drums somehow. <laughs> and so I pushed those boundaries as hard as I could until finally it was just like, dude, I have to just have a project that is admittedly not about drums from the very beginning. So that part was actually really comfortable. It's like, yeah. finally I get to say all these things that I've you know, tried to dumb down into drum world for years and <laughs> yeah, I was tired yeah, of doing sure. that. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you definitely can't just like start talking about like deep stuff in the middle of like a drum lesson. So you have to try to find a way to marry the two. I'm I'm yeah. stoked that you did it because I mean, obviously, I, I mentioned to you before I'd seen your videos, drum videos, because I play drums and like for years. Um, and uh, it's just interesting how your podcast brought to light to me like how little you know people you see on the internet every day because <laughs> mm-hmm. like. I, I had like one idea of like, well, actually, honestly, what it is is like it made you like a human being because you see someone on YouTube, especially when they're doing really well, and you immediately just like disconnect that they exist in reality in a weird way. Yeah. <laughs> and then you start posting those videos like, oh, this is like a dude that I'd like hang out with. <laughs> like, I was like, he's like a normal like dude that like has thoughts about stuff that I think about. And yeah, I, I think that's really cool. Like if anything, you know, obviously reaching a new... Uh, audience is the goal, but I definitely think it makes your existing audience probably more, you know, um, invested in what you're doing as well. Yeah, I had the thought that the at least the initial burst of fans in in this podcast would be like ultra loyal because there would be some people that had followed me for ten years in drum world, mm. and then it's like, oh wait a minute, but I actually think the other things that he talks about are interesting too. So my my, my hope was that it would foster like air quotes like super fans in the beginning right like people you know right. and i'm not sure if i don't get to say if that's actually what happened or not um but it's 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 cool to have that little base of people who already kind of know me and then yeah. it's also weird to have to give an impression to people who have no idea who you are and don't care like people that don't think drum world is cool yeah. and my ability to play or teach drums like doesn't have yeah. an impact when, it when means literally about, nothing to them yeah yeah dude we're talking yeah. about like philosophy and psychology and self and all these other things so that's been interesting too like very humbling to yeah. to have like all of my credit stripped away where it's like <laughs> ah that doesn't matter like what do you have now you know yeah immediately so that's it's been like cool. yeah it's like wait who's this guy again Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of I think I actually asked you something about that over on the episode we did was just like sort of struggling with that like new identity, loss of identity type thing because no matter where you're at in your life like or what you do or anything, you're going to encounter that so many times just like fully investing in one side of your personality and thinking like this is me until I die. And you can only take anything so far. I think that happened like you hear about that a lot with, you know, like really famous people that get to a point where they're like you know, their whole life they're known for one thing and then they finally confront themselves at like 50 and they're like, I'm not happy. <laughs> like, I don't even know yeah. why I'm doing this. They like pretend to be happy because people expect them to be happy. And, I, mm. and you know, that's obviously like the more um, extreme example, but I think everyone will encounter at some point, like, is this really all I ever want to be in my life? Is just someone who plays drums or just so it's like, it's cool, but is it that cool? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's that... Well, it's like a borderline mythological. It's like the Phoenix sort of thing, like shedding the old version and the yeah. new one. And you wonder how many times you have to do that because it sucks. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, um, it would be it would be nice to be like totally enchanted by drums and drums alone forever. Yeah, for right. Sure. That, that sounds really simple. You know, to have your 
your values and your interests really locked down like what a that's a, a lot of stability a lot of predictability but yeah and I'm sure you've experienced that too right like it's it's just not all always one thing like music doesn't always cut it sometimes there's there's more to talk about you know for sure yeah I went I mean I went through that uh with COVID because obviously, um, you know, your side, I know you used to tour and do stuff like that, but recently it's been more, you know, online teaching YouTube, all that. On the opposite where it's all been like in a studio or at a local venue or on tour at a venue or whatever. And uh, I definitely leaned pretty heavy. I'm turning 29 soon. So I leaned pretty heavy for my teen years and into my 20s to just being like, Sage Duvall, drummer, you know, every profile picture was like me playing drums, <laughs> you know, the stuff that you do, right? Yeah. And uh, then I couldn't do it anymore. And I was like, oh, I think that's where like, well, that's actually where like the mental health podcast started because I was like, wait, I might be mentally sick. <laughs> like, I might hate myself just a little bit. I should address these things. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, but like you said, it's that, you know, like rising from the ashes thing. I'm glad that I. I'm glad for every time in my life I've been forced to confront myself just a little bit more because I got to live in this body for hopefully a while. <laughs> gotta yeah, it's pretty stuck, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> kind of stuck here. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, what is? Do you have any any? And I say this, this is like a weird a weird question coming from someone who like didn't go to school for music. But do, do, in the psychology world, in the mental health world, do you have any like credentials there, or is it all just personal experience? <laughs> Yeah, all personal experience. That's the main uh, sort of thing about probably ever sharing or anything that I do is um, I don't pretend to have any credential. I would never give someone, like, I would always tell them, speak to someone. Um, sure. But the goal of probably ever sharing and just me having conversations in life with friends uh, is um, I think that speaking from my personal experience, like, when you're mentally sick, and you're struggling with something, one of the things that keeps you in that place is for some reason, and this isn't good, I'm not encouraging this, but a unwillingness to seek professional help. And I identified in my life when I was unwilling to do that, when I was in my teenage years and I was like suicidal and struggling with a bunch of things, uh, I identified that like I, just for my own personal like weirdness that I did at the time I didn't understand, needed almost like a middle point between like suffering alone and committing to like therapy and medication and being like well maybe this is a problem that I have and I ended up finding that in like a mentor friend of mine who had experienced something similar but in the meantime it was like reading books about it and like trying to educate myself and like try to think my way out of it which isn't again something that I recommend but I do think that if that's a process if that's a part of your process and you need to get through it I wanted to provide someone that healthy, easily accessible midpoint of like, this is someone and then hopefully a friend on the show that is discussing sort of where we're at and maybe guiding you through a little bit how we got to that place of like actually addressing it. And it's not always going to be medication or, you know, therapy or something like that. Although I think therapy is great for everyone and, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, medication if you need it. I don't actually take any medications, but um, whatever it is, like you're going to, you know, get there. But I think like, the goal of that show is to help people that are in that like unwilling stage to hold on and get that extra bit of context and comfort and uh, feeling uh, that maybe they're not as alone as they feel uh, in something. Um, so I think 
I think as valuable as people that have proper credential are, it is also valuable for people who don't necessarily have that to just be like, hey, this is me and this is my experience and like I'm here to talk to you all day, all night, whatever, and help you figure out a little bit more about yourself through my experiences. And that's sort of the goal of it. Sure. It's funny you mentioned you know, overthinking, which is something you and I both have in common. Seems kind of oh, se- yeah. self-evident. <laughs> that's where all that anxiety comes from. Yeah, um, yeah it, it's funny because I... I struggle with that one because if you have uh, a mental health problem, whether it's anxiety or depression or just a, a propensity to have like neurotic thinking, like you, your thoughts go negative for some reason or another, you know, the, the, you do need to think about it a bit for sure. Therapists can help do that and you probably should know a little bit about neurochemistry, like what are these chemicals working in your brain and how do they yeah. affect what you're doing? But the proper amount to, to like, like how much you think about it is not it's not specified anywhere so like at what point are you overthinking that's really hard to know like when did we go too far and now you need to actually think a little less like that's a really muddy line oh and yeah this, this came <laughs> right because um, you shouldn't be thinking zero it, that's not yeah. correct it's definitely yeah. not nothing but guys like you and i very clearly go too far sometimes and then you find yourself in these like mm-hmm. looping anxious thoughts or, or whatever negative state it might be as a result of thinking too much mm-hmm. you know I, this this came up for me uh recently where this was maybe like a year ago when i was considering proposing to my girlfriend of mm. seven years at the time really long time and i called my mom who i'm very close with and i was kind of going back and forth for a very long time about like my philosophy of marriage what exactly does this mean and i, I got hung up on a few little ideals with this idea of marriage specifically one that really hung me up was that you're saying to death do us part no matter what together forever but if i come home and you're shooting heroin and you know you're you're beating the dog and do like you know you're cheating on me like i'm definitely not staying around so it felt like this promise i can't really make like how could i say you and i are going to be buddies forever well like not if you steal from me, dude. So I, I can't right. promise you that, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so it was like little little niche points like this that were really hanging me up. And in talking with my mom about this, she said, you've always had a habit of thinking yourself out of a good thing. Mm. And that really hit hard. That, that Since I was a child, I've done that. I, I've thought myself out of good things that are right in front of me. And so yeah. to me, I'm trying to use that that ideal or that statement as that's when you can draw that line of when are you overthinking? You know, if if your thoughts result in you walking away from something that's good for you, objectively, you've probably thought about it a little bit too much, but still a really, it's an, a, such a tough line to draw, you know? For sure, man, I relate to that so much. Like, I mean, obviously I'm not like married, but I've had that thought so much <laughs> about it. Like, I mean, obviously anyone, About marriage? Yeah, for sure. Like, the idea, like, I mean, because everyone thinks about it, right? And you're dating someone, or even if you're not, you just think about, like, oh, I wonder if I'll ever get married or whatever. And I always hit yeah. that exact wall where I'm like, yeah, I don't know about all this. Like, it seems kind of sus. <laughs> like, because I, again, <laughs> I, I try to go all the way to the this, like, insane end point, which is so not only like counterintuitive to what you're trying to do, which is build a life with someone one piece at a time, um, like moment by moment, but also like it, it literally achieves nothing because it's unknowable, like the kinds of struggles that you or your partner could go through that maybe 20 years down the road would lead to, you know, anything. It's so crazy. And yeah, I but I relate so hard. I do that with everything. I'll do that with 
just yeah like i'll i'll get like a job or even like just like a one-off gig and i'll immediately go to like the worst possible scenario with it i think it's good in some ways to familiarize yourself with worst you know the worst possible things that could happen so that you're prepared and almost desensitized to the uh potential shock factor (laughs) that could could happen but at the same time like projecting them into your immediate reality is uh not helpful to anyone and it's something that I do quite a bit. Uh, I haven't talked to you actually since you got married. Um, so okay. congrats on that, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you've been married. Well, that was a f- uh, like a few months ago now, right? Yeah, a few months ago. There's one podcast on on this channel. Um, oh, gotcha. uh, about the wedding. Haven't caught yeah, that we one did yet. Re- real small. We did like you know 35 people um, up in the mountains. Real cool. Nice. We live in Florida, but we're not beach people at all. So yeah. we just <laughs> went to middle of nowhere in Tennessee. It was really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was killer, man. It's killer, and it's it's weird too because being married is almost anticlimactic for people that have been together that long. We've been together like about eight years, right. so it's like like nothing is different. Like we already bought the house, and you know, there's a couple of weird nerd things that come up. Like I can get insurance through her work now. Okay, like, yeah, yeah, little shit like that. But beyond that, it's we were already acting as though we were married by every other definition, right? So yeah, it you makes got pets it, and yeah. bills together and shit. Yeah. Yeah, I was, like, that was, like, my first, like, like, that was what I was going to ask, is, like, were you guys already, you know, like, living together, all that stuff, and if, if you already are, which, of course, by eight years, you know, you are, um, yeah. it's, like, you <laughs> just kind of, yeah, you kind of, like, leave the wedding, and it's, like, okay, well, back to the life as we've been living it. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. yeah. Which, in One some ways, I, which, in some ways, should ease some of the concern you had about it, right? Because <laughs> it's, like, yeah. you're, like, oh, I'm afraid of getting married, but it's, like, you already kind of are. So it's like you're yeah. afraid of making it official, you know? Well, buying a house with somebody, which we did a couple years ago, that alone is like, you're already in it, dude. Like, that, yeah. you know how complicated it is to like sell a house with someone that you own a house with? That that alone is is really difficult. So that was certainly part of it. But one realization I did have that sort of helped me get over that barrier was it's almost like a, like a faith versus reason kind of thing. And we tend to think of that in like, like religious terms a lot of times like Mm -hmm. people would ignore science because they'd rather have faith in something else that sort of concept but the way that i've perceptualized this now is that you you apply reason as far as it will possibly take you until you run into those unknowns that you mentioned because you don't have to think very hard about certain things like marriage until you run into that wall where it's like, well, okay, beyond this point, you have no idea. Like, you, you just can't say what it's going to be like in this direction, that direction. All these little domains, they're all giant question marks. Mm-hmm. But I look at it now as though you should use reason and analytical thinking and common sense to take you as far as you can, and faith enters after all of that has been done. And a lot of times people think it's like one or the other. It's binary. You're either operating purely based off of faith or you're going to go the like analytical reason route. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that it's like there's an order of operations there. And so the amount of thinking that I had to do about the concept of marriage to get there, I think I should have done that. But when you run into those walls, well, it's like now we're we're dealing with more of like a a philosophical faith idea where you do have to place trust in something despite yeah. there being no evidence that it's going to go this way or that way. For sure, yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 rough because being formerly religious and no longer that way, faith is always a weird pill to swallow. Like I don't I, like I'm like a little kid. Like I don't yeah. want to do it. Like prove it, prove it. You know. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna ask. 
you because I, I thought I remembered us talking about that. Um, not being currently religious, like what is sort of like when you say faith, what does that mean to you? Is it like faith in like the universe or faith in like, like is there like a higher power that you still sort of believe in or like where, like what is, like what does faith kind of mean to you? Sure. Well, faith is in, in my eyes now, it is the thing that fills the gaps when you, when again, when you exhaust all of your reason. And mm-hmm. so, uh, okay, here, here's a good way to say this. Um, there's a, a classic philosophical problem. And that is that this sounds way more complicated than it is, but you cannot derive an ought from an is. So science tells you what is, but it will not tell you what ought to be. Mm. Right? So, for example, science can help you make an atom bomb, but if you want to use science to determine when you should drop the atom bomb, science has nothing to say. Interesting. So okay. That's an example of one of those like scientific or it's it's a limit of science. It's a limit of objective reality at a certain point like you run out of answers and faith to me is sort of how you resolve what's past that limit so i think where people make mistakes with faith is applying it when it's not needed when when you could explore this question more and use your your intellect to try and form a a, somewhat of an answer to this question or to that question but it's it's like easier to just have faith in some system that answers all of that for you. To me, that's like intellectually lazy. But I see. Interesting. Yeah, but I, I think faith, faith does have a place. Um, but it's after you've done a lot, a lot of a lot of thinking. <laughs> right. You know, people, right. people don't like done, that. Yeah, after you've done your research. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I was I was, I was just curious. Like, I mean, I am I'm not involved in any organized religion. I was raised Christian, got away mm. from that. I do. I do believe in like creation and like higher power and stuff. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a constant, uh, question I think for everyone sort of what role science plays in that, because I do very much believe in science, um, as much as I believe in what I believe, you know what I mean? Like belief Mm -hmm. is something that is almost impossible to explain, right? Like once, once someone believes in something, regardless of what it is, that's like that thing kind of has power over them right because they believe in it like and no one else can really influence their belief entirely i mean you can influence it but you can't like change someone's belief right that's i guess some of the issues that are going on in the world right now uh, in in general is that people are really being pushed to the brink of what each individual believes it's not so much like fact or what maybe would be uh, correct or you know like incorrect it's like a battle of like I believe this and I believe this and I want this and at some point it becomes so confusing that uh, until people actually step back and reassess what they're willing to believe in or unwilling to believe in it's almost like we've hit like a wall with some of that stuff and I uh, I constantly try to check in with myself about what I am allowing myself to start to believe <laughs> um, because <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of the only person that's uh, going to be able to curate that general list of, you know, actions I will perform in reaction to uh, to that. That was a really confusing sentence, but... <laughs> no, I understand what you mean. Yeah, it's um, it's it's tricky, man, on that that concept of belief. I, I've I learned something, or rather, I heard a perspective recently, um, and this was in regards to a, a political issue, which I, I don't intend to go down the political wormhole necessarily, mm-hmm. but it was about Israel and Palestine, mm-hmm. and which is a very, very very complex old problem it's for sure yeah even if you get even if we gave people a general overview we're still missing a thousand things like a thousand years (laughs) yeah thousands of years of information that you would need to like weigh in to understand what's going on there and 
the way it was explained to me was like, you know, if, if I asked you right now to look around the room that you're in and give me a list of facts about that room, you could probably come up with a hundred facts right away that the audio panels behind you are shaped this way and the microphone is mounted in this position. These are all like objective facts about reality. But the problem is that facts are infinite in that you can go to a molecular level and name tens of thousands of more facts just about the screen that's on your microphone right now because mm. there's little scratches and you right? like like there's an infinite amount of facts in the world and this is one of the things that happens in weird political debates is that you could make a really strong argument for either Israel or Palestine depending on which set of facts you bring to the argument and there's yeah. so many facts so many so many stories over thousands of years that have to do with that conflict that depending on your your perspective like the frame that you bring up and how you want to look at it you can pitch a really strong argument in either direction it's like which century are you looking at and what set of facts are you bringing to the table to support that argument right and yeah <laughs> i feel like this happens a lot in, in i use israel and palestine because it's particularly complicated but in in even if you were going to like debate trump like well which set of facts are you bringing up because I feel like I could make an argument in both directions that this is like the worst thing that ever happened to the country and that it's really not that bad at all. Depends on which frame I choose to bring up, right? Again, it's like infinite facts. Makes it, 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 it makes it more, more understandable that people could view the same event and come up with different beliefs because they extracted completely unrelated facts from the event because the amount of facts about the event were infinite. So they selectively choose yeah. which ones they want to believe and then they form a subsequent belief off of that. For sure. That's why, yeah, uh, yeah, all that. It, it, it's so many things <laughs> that you said. <laughs> yeah, that it was I, a lot. Yeah. No, but I, I'm on the same page. Like, it is odd. I, I think, like, the only thing you can really do in... Yeah, like, you have to... Now, I guess what I try to do is I try to... I'm always looking to learn from people, and I I realize how dangerous that can be <clears throat> um, when you are like now. I try to only have these conversations with people who I feel like have that equal willingness to learn from me, because, like you said, these issues they boil down now to what you want to look at, what you want to see, what you want your belief to be on this issue, and a lot of times. Uh, actually almost all the time people enter into it just wanting you to understand their belief uh wanting you to like agree with them by the end of it and that's the thing it's like why do we say well we don't talk about politics or you know like religion it shouldn't be that big of an issue if everyone entered into it open-mindedly but it turns into like a debate and once people start debating they just become more entrenched in their like the belief they had going in and then they want to be right and then they want to win <laughs> it just goes down to this thing where it's like we're ultimately arguing things that neither one of us really understand and like we should both be seeking to learn more about everything really um yeah there really should be no like even something like trump which is something that like we're not going to obviously dive into but like i feel like i have my mind sure. pretty made up about <laughs> like but at the same time when i talk to someone who's like a big trump supporter i still want to hear what they have to say even though i feel like i already kind of know like i try to like okay let me like get an alternate perspective because otherwise I'm not hurting them I'm hurting myself like I'm doing myself like a disservice because even if I hear them out whoever it is not just a Trump person but anyone I hear them out and I still disagree I still benefited my existing belief by 
testing it, you know, by by hearing another side again and okay, coming to the same conclusion again and coming back in, I'll you never come back to that conclusion without bringing more information with you. So, yeah. I try to at this point, I mean, maybe that's just like growing up or something, but at this point I just really try to like let everyone have their moment and try not to go into anything close-minded except for things like Jeff Bezos flying to space. That's weird and we don't need it to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely I do think it's a maturity thing to I don't know, to to have a willingness to hear someone out even though you know from the very first presupposition that they set up you're like I definitely think you're wrong, right? Like it Trump is such a good example because like everybody tends to have their mind made up about him. But but you're you're right. It's a great point to say that your argument only strengthens if you're willing to hear out someone's argument, especially if it's a good argument, and then still at least intellectually like in your own mind debunk that argument, right? Where like here's why I don't believe that necessarily. But I also think it it is it's so important to to not well, let me rephrase that. It's it's in your best interest to be interested when someone looks at the same problem that you're looking at and comes to a different conclusion. That's that's like deeply interesting that we that you and I, let's just say, could watch the same news clip and take like we abstract two different sets of facts from it and come to different conclusions. Like to me, that's more interesting than it is problematic. Like it is problematic and we do have to have a really complicated conversation if we watch the same clip. And you're like, that was bullshit. And I'm like, no, that was awesome. Like, whoa, we need to unpack this here. Because, <laughs> like, did we just watch the same thing? And, you know, th- this happens all the time. But, I don't know, to me, it's like you can you can almost train yourself to find that more interesting um, th- than offensive. And I think there's a lot of reasons why people find those disagreements to be offensive. But it really shouldn't be. I think it's, it, how, what a weird, lame world it would be if everyone came to the same conclusions by observing reality. Like, that's weird as shit. Yeah, there would be no furthering society, really. Um, there, it's, it requires a certain amount of friction or discomfort to grow anything, right? I mean, isn't that just, like, one of the rules of, like, self-improvement, right? You have to make yourself yep. somewhat uncomfortable. And <clears throat> being challenged is great. I think it's <clears throat> where that becomes strange to me is when you start giving a individual whether it's a religious figure or a political figure or whatever, uh, actual power over, like, deciding how something is going to happen for everyone. That's yeah. why those conversations turn to wars, right? Because it's, like, yep. it's chill when it's, like, me and you, like, I don't believe this. Well, I kind of do. Well, I'm open to believing it. Well, I'm open to kind of not, you know? And then we're like, okay, cool. We both leave with something to think about. It's another thing when it's like, I'm open to believing this thing. Yeah, I don't care. So it's not going to be that way anymore. <laughs> that's like <laughs> that's when it becomes a problem. And um, I think that ultimately is where I left religion because religion, there are certain walls. And I mean, I'll, you know, I've had this conversation with people before where they're like, well, what about, you know, and I don't know all the terms, but there's like certain sects of Christianity and stuff where basically the rules that are taught in Christianity like don't fully apply. <laughs> I don't know if I'm saying that right, but like sure. you can kind of pick and choose like they it's like open to your interpretation sort of vibe. Um and that is to some extent, but I just think like uh in general with something as important as like uh sort of tangling with your own inner belief about the universe and why you exist having someone to sort of uh 
curate <laughs> what like how you're allowed to feel that gets a little weird. Um, so yeah, I love those like open forum conversations when it's with friends. And I think my point from earlier was I just try to make sure it stays with people that I feel like I have a good amount of trust in uh, their willingness to grow along with me more so than feeling that they're deeply entrenched and they would rather me become as enlightened as they feel they are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. And to be honest, this is one of the weird things that I think like the founding fathers of America got very right is they designed a, a slow, clunky government that was like built for eternal war between the parties. Like, it, you know, like it, it's we have a very, very powerful, but also a very slow, chunky government. And that just the concept of checks and balances that we can't have someone come in, even though it's projected like this is what all political leaders want to do the idea that one person can come in and take over our whole system is genuinely not possible like it's set up for that to not happen yeah uh, that at some point along the line the power has to get passed around and shared and distributed yeah. in government it's one of the reasons we have we have a hard time getting anything done too but it's it's sort of like the like i i feel like i always got to give a lot of credit to the founding fathers of, of realizing that the battle the back and forth is exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to have these uncomfortable conversations where not a single individual, like a religious figure, for example, is able to dictate everything that we're doing because there's there's groupthink mentalities that follow along with that. Enter Stalin, enter Hitler, right? Like we've seen what it looks like when one person with a fucking insane idea gets all of the power, you know, and, and I do feel grateful sometimes that we're in a country where it's fundamentally designed for that to not happen. Mm. Not that people don't try, but it, it sure seems like we're in a really difficult place for something like that to happen, you know? So I'm a fan of slow, chunky government. I think it's a good idea. It, it prevents that, that religious extremism from yeah, happening, yeah, sure. right? Where, yeah. Yeah, at least that's the that's the intent, and you know the ship hasn't sank yet. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're still here. Yeah, well, it's, we're still here. It's it's funny too, because like that's how everything is. I mean, like you you mentioned earlier, right? Like the marriage concept. Like, what if one day? Well, that's how everything is furthered, right? Like you said, through the that friction, through the problems, through the arguments, right? That's you celebrate that when it's in the government, but when it's your own life, you're like, oh no, I don't know if I want to commit to this. Right? Yeah, <laughs> but that's kind of the point, right? You're expecting to encounter some problem because you are the first to state. That's the only way forward is to encounter that every so often is uh, is to be kind of pushed to your brink a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it w the phrase that came up in the last podcast I did with my buddy Devin. The phrase that came up was like comfort in battle. That's mm. the goal, not to win. You're probably not going to win, and if you do, now you're surrounded by losers, right? Because you're the only one that won, you know. So like, <laughs> that's interesting. It's, yeah, yeah. You don't yeah, want to create a bunch of losers, and you that just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work in marriage. I don't think it works in politics. I don't think it works in friends groups. I think oftentimes it's the it's a it's like part of the duality of the universe. It's a push pull back and forth forever, like until yeah. you're dead. You know, nobody's supposed to win in a lot of these interactions politically and in marriage and it's uh it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable because it's it's like saying the fight's never going to be over but i don't think i don't think we want it to be yeah no, i wouldn't know what to do with myself if i didn't have some kind of pervasive unpleasantness <laughs> in my life yeah but yeah it's it, you know it's interesting too because i was talking to a friend the other day um the you know the whole like mental health thing sort of started uh as you know, like a series of suicidal episodes I had uh, gone through. I have 
for those listening who aren't familiar with me at all, which is most people, um, I have uh, a dissociative disorder, several actually, um, which I know that you've experienced as well, Adam. But um, oh yeah, uh, depersonalization disorder, derealization, all that, and. Um, you know, there were some issues in my life where I had times in my life when I had been sort of pushed to feeling uh, suicidal and sort of uh, leaning heavily into that sort of darker side of my mind. And um, I got kind of comfortable in that space, and I'm really happy and relieved and proud to say that I'm not there anymore. Um, but I'm very comfortable with it. So, you know, I try to reach out to people, let them sort of come to me uh, when they when they sort of need someone to talk to. And the other day. This kind of ties into what we're talking about with, you know, like comfort in the battle. Um, my friend, I was kind of helping her through another friend's issue, and she came to me as, I don't know what to do with this friend. Can you sort of talk to her? She's dealing with some stuff. She attempted, you know, something on her life and all that. And I was like, okay, let's, let's you know, let's, let's talk to her. And my friend said to me, she was like, oh, well, I wish... She's like, it pains me that you're so comfortable in this space. Like, I am glad you're here to talk to her, but at the same time, I wish you didn't have all this, like, pain and experience. And I told her, like, I don't wish that. <laughs> like, I'm actually really glad that, like, it's a huge gift that I'm still here. And I don't, like, I wouldn't like to live those days again necessarily, but, like, I'm glad I did. And I'm glad that I am comfortable in that discomfort now. I'm, like, comfortable now in that in that space of having dark, heavy conversation and maybe, you know, triggering myself a little bit, bringing up some bad experiences, some bad memories. It only reinvests me in the present moment and reinvests me in helping other people exist in this present moment with me. And it makes me just a more thankful person. And I think it's very necessary and healthy to uh, just openly and just lovingly accept the good with the bad, with like everything that comes along in life. It, it, to me, it's sort of the only way to make sense of existing. Uh, you can't just idealize your situation. You have to fully accept the terms of your uh condition and just be like, this is how my life's going to look until I, I die. So I may as well be stoked on it, you know, try to sure. try to find what's sure. good about it. And it, it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to actually feel it. And that's something that really has only happened to me recently, uh, getting to a point where I'm like, you know what? I'm glad that I like almost killed myself, <laughs> like, which is a weird thing to say because it always comes back to like, but I didn't. And I'm here. And that's awesome. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, came through it, yeah. came through it. Okay. Well, you undoubtedly have a different perspective than you would have had otherwise. There, there's no way to attain whatever perspective it is that you have now. It's 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 earned in yeah. a way. You had to go to a particular boundary to to look at things the way that you look at them now. And it's it's cool that you're able to share that with people. But I'm sure you know that unless someone's been in that position, they do not understand what it is that you understand now. Yeah, so for sure. Th that, that's a thing to be grateful for, a, a perspective that you, there's no other way you could have had it unless you went to that boundary and yeah. came back. I see it as such like a gift now that I've been so mentally sick at certain points in my life because so many people are going to struggle with that for my entire lifetime and the ability to even help them in the smallest possible way or just make them feel understood is like a superpower to me. Like I really like uh, love that I can give people a feeling of being less alone or less like crazy, say, in that space. Um, but yeah, it, it's also interesting too. <laughs> this is kind of dark, but kind of like funny to me because I have, I guess, such a weird sense of humor now. <laughs> Let's but, do it. <laughs> so I have this thing on my arm, right? It's like a mole scar now. I got my mole cut off two weeks ago. And the mole had turned black and I didn't know what that 
that situation was. And I went to the doctor, and he like told me um, that it like might be cancer. Like, spoiler, it's not. We've, it, it's fine. <laughs> but for the next like week, the last like eight days, so basically two days ago, I found out I don't have cancer. Everything's good. But the doctor really freaked me out. He was like, it could have gone into like your lymph nodes. Like he said a bunch of stuff he shouldn't have said for a doctor who hadn't even done a biopsy yet. Um, <laughs> kind of a bad doctor, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> um, he like I went in there thinking I don't have cancer. I left being like I'm gonna die. Like so he really panicked me. Um, but anyway, I found it kind of ironic that someone who had been to such a point of like wanting to die had now been so afraid of dying. I like left and I was like I don't want to die. Like. That sucks, and I caught a glimpse of myself because it wasn't that it was only like a year and a half ago that I was in like a suicidal spiral, and I was like, it, so for at at one point I I the like that self loathing started in me like I don't even deserve to not have cancer because I already tried to kill myself so you know I went like down that thing where it's like I I shouldn't even be alive anyway, and then I was like, I kind of you know stages of panic or whatever grief whatever they call it and like I arrived at this place where I was like. No, I think I actually like really, really want to live now, and that's part of why I'm so freaked out. Like, and it made me, um, again, that like suicidal journey made me like more thankful for what I have now, and it circled me back into this place of like wanting to like fight to live. You know what I mean? And so when I found out I didn't have cancer, I was even more excited to be alive. I was like, "Yo, yeah. <laughs> now I'm extra here." <laughs> so it was just, I, yeah, yeah. It's 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 interesting that. Even when you take someone who's in a position where they say, like, I don't want to live, they they will still act like they do in that in that will you avoid pain, mm-hmm. right? Like you'll still like even your your biological systems, these primitive systems, you'll still like avoid falling off a cliff. You'll mm-hmm. still jump backwards if you see a snake on the ground. Like you'll still like swerve your car to not hit something like there's still this deep programming like within everyone that is to survive yeah and it's weird that like even though you can intellectually get to a place where you have decided that you don't want to live so much of your being still does like it's it still totally does you yeah. know it's it's strange and yeah. so I'm, I'm curious if um in your entire history of mental health are there any recurring themes that come up like things that would that would make you feel as though life was not worth living is that tied to an ideal that's always kind of been there yeah um i think like the suicidal nature with me comes i think typically from the fact that depersonalization disorder and the dissociative motor disorder the things that i experience and even some elements of the depression are like uncurable and i think you know you actually touched on something that it didn't so much hit me when you said it in the last podcast, but when I was editing it, <laughs> it came back up to me and you touched on the idea of like trapping ourselves in the idea of what life ought to be, right? Which goes back to what you're saying earlier with like faith and all that. And like, I think that ultimately is like what does me in is like thinking, like idealizing other people's life and thinking like, I don't want to exist like this. And it's not that I necessarily want to be them. It's just like I see in my mind it's possible to not feel this way, but not for me. Like they get to not mm. feel this way, but I don't get to. And I think it's probably something that people go through when they lose like a limb or something, you know, when they when they are suddenly or they like lose their vision. They're cheated out of something that they feel like they're supposed to have. 
and it like devalues in a way what they do have. And I think it's natural that that's a whole journey to like accept your condition so much that you actually start to celebrate maybe the the things that it's given you that maybe other people don't have like to start looking mm-hmm. for those like really small things like i would see and i'm in no way trying to say that i have it harder than anyone i'm saying that's how i felt like i really do think that everyone kind of struggles equally in life um but i used to think that i had it worse and now i i truly don't feel that way anymore but like i used to feel like well their lives are better and i wish i could just exist like that now I look at it more like they're doing their thing, I'm doing my thing, <laughs> and like they got some things that I wish I had. I probably have some things they wish they had. And ultimately, if I'm looking at someone like that, I'll now just try to like bring them into my life and learn from them and try to exchange like I was talking about earlier. But I think where the suicidal nature uh, in me came from was like having been up for like almost three days straight, unable to sleep because I was uh, disassociating too bad, the panic attacks were too bad, and the panic attacks the dissociative panic attacks with me had gotten to such a point where like for days my limbs would be like going numb and I would be like nauseous and I would be dizzy and like my actual body was experiencing physical symptoms of like illness and I was actually making myself sick and I was getting to the point where I was like not super I wasn't doing a super great job at my job you know and like things like that and I felt myself falling behind and like music and I started to be like I'm actually like sick I don't want to exist that way. And it's not that as soon as you feel that, you like become suicidal. I think it's like months and months turn into years of feeling some version of that. And then you reach a point where you're like, where it really, I really hit a wall, uh, like around COVID time was feeling this really weird idea that I was supposed to, at I guess 27 at the time, be past this point in my life and feeling like, well, I've kind of... I kind of like effed it, you know what I mean? Like I'm still <laughs> stuck in this place and like I don't seem to be able to figure this out. And that sort of hopelessness I think spread through me just uh, stemming from like a self-loathing disappointment in myself of just like, man, I thought when I was like 16, by the time I was 27, 28, I'd be like chilling, you know? But in some ways I was like, I feel worse. That's when you start to be like, can I even do this for the next like 40 years? And I think that's where you start to spiral. Um, But I'm happy to say to anyone listening, all that is crazy. And if you have those thoughts, (laughs) you're also being a little crazy (laughs) because there's no place you're supposed to be. Like you said last time, there's no way life is ought to be. So it's weird, man. Like I, I heard a phrase that you just reminded me of, and that is that, you know, when you think about the concept of suicide, it is possible that your suffering could be so great that death gains an appeal because that Mm -hmm. would definitely no experience would be better than this one right and i think people who have never had a suicidal thought in their life you know i mean maybe you 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 could say well you haven't suffered enough because we could increase your suffering to a point where that's a real option for you now (laughs) right push them to rock bottom yeah (laughs) yeah exactly and and if you if you already think you have a rock bottom let's go 10 layers below that and then we'll talk right like the the depths of hell that depersonalization can bring to someone is is really hard to describe it because is strange, there are yeah. yeah i've never settled in on a on a suicidal mindset i've i've never 
just had that that feeling like or that thought be perpetual in my mind but i can think of isolated incidents of panic attacks where in that moment if you asked me if i wanted to die like the answer would have been yeah, yeah. because because of the the unbelievable terror that comes with that that type of anxiety attack and for anybody listening that doesn't understand what that is it's like um your it's like your consciousness kind of abandons you for a minute. Oh, yeah. Like you you are not yourself. It's as though you're playing a video game inside the body of someone else. And I remember you had mentioned before face blindness is one mm -hmm. of the things that happen. You you can't recognize people. Yeah, or you myself. don't recognize the clothes that you're wearing. Your own hands don't feel like yeah. yours. Your voice sounds like someone else's voice. Yeah, for sure. I don't recognize it's my terrifying. face or any of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 way I think of like a severe dissociative panic attack. And I mean, obviously there's so many like sub terms, right? So you could experience this feeling I'm about to describe unrelated to those feelings and it would still probably be the same. But for me, when I'm having like a really dissociatively charged uh, panic attack, which can last for days in my case, um, it's that suicide actually becomes like in your conscious mind, it becomes like necessary. It's like, I must stop this from happening. And that's where it gets really scary to me because that's where I would feel myself being like, this isn't a question of like, if I should, it's like, I have to do this. Like, I need to stop this moment from happening. And I learned recently um, from a professional who, like I said earlier, I'm not, <laughs> but a, a professional uh, um, LPC uh, up in Nashville where I used to live. Um, she told me that part of that is because your gray matter, your body actually starts eating the gray matter. And the gray matter is what sort of carries the neurotransmitters and sort of allows them to travel through your brain. So your thinking becomes extremely black and white. It becomes very uh, rigid. And that concept to me was, it clicked so many experiences like into place in my mind um, where I was like, oh, okay. Because I would leave an episode like that and I would feel crazy, which is something that now I don't really think that, it, I don't think going insane is even really like a thing. Um, that's like a comic book thing. But uh, I would temporarily lapse into insanity, essentially, and I would come back from it a few days later, and I would be like embarrassed to be like, what happened? Like, I was saying- It was like a mania? Yeah, basically. And I, I didn't really realize that that's a result of like my brain being actually too rigid and too starved of its own gray matter to actually function properly. And I think thoughts like that like relieve a lot of the guilt from it and actually allow you to start like loving yourself enough to take the steps to correct that behavior um, because that was a big issue for me too was like have the episode spiral and then kind of get on solid ground but then spiral over having spiraled and then spiral over spiraling it, it, it created this like kind of perpetual like shame spiral that would then bring on another episode and I think a big part of me stopping that was getting to a place where I could be like, yeah, this isn't that weird and it's not that like gross. <laughs> like this is just kind of like how it is and like I'll figure it out if I you know, just give myself time to do so, give myself space to like reach out to someone and be like, "Hey, you have any advice for me?" Um because yeah, like I said, if your brain is or if your body is basically eating all of your gray matter, um, all you're really going to do is like freak out. You know what I mean? You're just going to be like, everything is like life or death. You know, it's like, I have to live. I have to die. You're thinking in these like crazy spectrums of just like back and forth. Whereas typically you could add some context and be like, you know, I'm feeling bad, but 
you know, I remember feeling bad a few days ago in that past. Like you have these really nuanced, subtle thoughts that inform your ability to hold on through that. But when you're in that really intense panic, panic situation, it's it's all life and death. Yeah, yeah. It's tough to speak about some of these things because you have you you have to remember some people are in that. They're in the center of a panic attack, right? Where some of this stuff, it almost doesn't apply. Like the goal is to survive. Like philosophy doesn't work when you're, you know, like when you're in the middle of the storm, like some of these bigger ideals don't necessarily apply. But I think when you get out of that, you know, and you're you're able to to somewhat function and move along, even if it was in, you know, severe depression, you know, it, you, you can carve out a lot of neural pathways. And like you said, I, I think people tend to get like, ground into these specific ways of ways of thinking and a lot of it is like neurological like your brain is just not functioning as it should and climbing out of that that hole of depression or or anxiety episodes like man it's a it's really tricky it's like getting out of a maze sometimes you know yeah i mean it's like anything else it just really pays to invest in learning yourself and um just understanding like i said earlier that you got to exist in this body for a while so (laughs) Give yourself time to have bad days, you know? Give yourself time to, like, totally, like, blow it, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Because <laughs> there's days where I'll go to bed and I'll just be like, man, all I did today was, like, survive. And that's fine. Yeah. Like, sometimes, like, what what better thing was there to do with my day than that anyway? You know what I mean? Like, sometimes I, I have to bring myself back down to earth and be like, I only think I have to be, like... You know, like, drums is, like, a big one, right, that, like, me and you can relate on. Like, I used to... Uh, I had a drum teacher at one point that was like, make sure every day that you've at least gotten some time in on the practice pad and you've like worked on your rudiments so, and then you're like 1% better. And I would get thoughts like that in my mind, be like, I didn't even work on my paradiddles today. <laughs> and I'd go to bed and be like, wow, what a failure. And I'd be like, what a weird reason to like, or like, what a weird gauge for my like success at being a human being you know what I mean it's like Mm -hmm. my double stroke rolls got one percent faster today (laughs) this was a good day like it's weird and (laughs) I try to shift to like valuing like maybe I got a little bit better at like being like a self-respecting self-loving individual today by like prioritizing you know it's like I'll know how I'll know how to play drums tomorrow like I'll know you know I can run six miles tomorrow I just skip a day you know and it's not a question of like not putting pressure on myself because I really do well I mean it's unavoidable I just I have a really high standard for myself but like I also like I think it's important like I said earlier to put pressure on yourself and make yourself a little bit uncomfortable but um, that's that's a push pull you know like you can burn yourself out really bad and um, that's a concept that I think some people just like know from birth (laughs) like how to take (laughs) care of themselves um my sister's like that. She's like really good at like under like listening to her body and like understanding like tonight is like a stay in on the couch and like watch Netflix kind of night. Like that's just what I need to do. That's something that has been so hard for me to learn. Like, and I guess less learn, but so hard to give myself permission to do. Just like yes. actually listen to what I want. <laughs> like yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's 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 a challenge. So there's a really interesting book that touches on this a little bit. It's called The Righteous Mind by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. Okay. And it it's somewhat political, but it basically talks about how there are, you know, you, you could categorize people in two different categories, like the people that have a propensity to be like the nurturing mom, and then people who have 
the propensity to be like a disciplinary father, like those that like that spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of what you're talking about, like either going really hard on yourself or inherently like nurturing yourself. And both of those can be fleshed out to the extreme where they're bad. Like imagine a child being raised by uh, a, a mother who is like overly, or just any person who is far too nurturing, far too loving. There's no discipline, there's no structure. It's just all love, you're awesome at everything. Like that kid ends up sucking. That's not the way to do it. And then you have someone who's like raised by a tyrant and they're just beat down because they're never good enough. It, yeah. You know, there's they're surrounded by rules like all the time. And it's it's weird, man. I think people have natural dispositions with how they speak to themselves and how that works for them. I think there are some people who get and this it sounds kind of extreme, but like people who get poisoned by self-love in mm-hmm. that you love yourself long before you you have done anything worthy of being loved. And I know that sounds extreme, not that like your consciousness is not valuable, that your life is inherently not valuable, not that, but like having a sense of pride in who you are before you've worked on who you are, yeah. that, that can that can go wrong. It certainly oh, yeah. can go wrong, right? Um, and I, I think that even the concept of pride is tied into accomplishment. You should be proud when you have done something worthy yeah. of pride, right? And you can go the other way where someone who speaks to themselves in their mind like a drill sergeant and they just berate themselves constantly for not being good enough. And it's weird because I think there is a balance between those two. You want to have both of those things. But it's weird that people like the the homeostasis that people need to find is not the same. Like Mm -hmm. I I think we like to think of this as 50-50 where there are days when you should be hard on yourself and there are days when you should love yourself and you should find that perfect balance down the middle. But I think depending on people's personality types and their inherent traits, it might not actually be 50-50. I think there's some people where it's like 70-30. Like Mm -hmm. the balance for you might be actually you need to be really hard on yourself most of the time. And sometimes you need to let up a little bit. And other people it's like, listen man, you really can't be that hard on yourself often because you don't handle that well. So that's like a negative voice in your head that you really need to get that thing quiet and Mm -hmm. focus on loving yourself a lot more. And I don't know, it's just interesting that it's not an equal balance between people, right? I don't think it's 50-50 for almost anyone. I know for me, it's like 80% of the internal voice that I have in my head is screaming at me. That that and that I need to lean into that. Like I feel that. for telling myself that I'm a piece of shit if I don't do something, like it works. Now, I don't know what else to say. It it just it actually works. hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's strange, man. And there are other people where that just crushes them. That particular voice just crushes them. Yeah. Um yeah, it's it's strange, man. Very weird. Yeah. I've never uh actually thought about it sort of like you just explained, sort of everyone needing to divide that that little math problem up in their own way but i yeah you're right like i think that you know it's all a question of knowing yourself and like figuring out how to enable yourself to thrive but some people are just maybe going to be a little bit abusive to themselves uh and i think that that is okay once the person like understands it's almost like a side eye it's like i tell myself that i'm a terrible person but i also like don't fully believe it you yeah. know what i mean i kind of yeah, like yeah, side eye myself that. yeah 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 <laughs> it's give like, yourself the side eye <laughs> yeah exactly it's like sort of learning to understand the subtleties of that voice where like i'm telling myself the thing that panics me because i know it will ease my panic in the long run if i listen to that panic now you know it's like managing these like micro behaviors um 
yeah, and you it's just, like, you know, uh, yeah, it just reminds me of like, like you're tapping in. This is like archetypal kind of stuff, but like you're tapping into your inner dad, and then you yeah. tap into your your inner mom, right? Yeah. Like you have yeah. to listen to both voices and. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, it's. I mean, but th- that goes back to what we said like an hour ago, right? Like, it, like how you were saying, like it is necessary to think your way. You know, maybe not out of a situation, but definitely think deeply and borderline excessively in a scenario to really come to a place of understanding it. Now, in that, hopefully, you arrive at a place where you can manage your own self abuse <laughs> rather than let it <laughs> run rampant. But I mean, a little bit of you know, uh, not abuse necessarily, but, you know, for lack of a better term, like a little bit of uh, cracking the whip is is necessary. I think like it's necessary, like you said earlier, like, you know, achievement is key for like pride and for anything. And like, it is important to be a little rigid with yourself sometimes. I think that that's like the stereotype of people that don't like rich kids or trust fund kids, right? It's not actually about hating their money necessarily. It's that some people believe that they've already earned their place just by existing. And yeah. They're just born into a situation of secular validation from those around them and knowing that there's not any real consequence for doing or not doing. Um, they could do something horrible and maybe they'll get away with it. They could do something or they could not do something at all and their life wouldn't get worse in any particular way, you know, things like that. Um, and that's also why sometimes you meet a trust fund person or a rich person and you actually really like them because they just happen to not go down that path. And it's never necessarily about the money. It's about the reality they accept about themselves. Like, I'm great, nothing can really touch me, it's fine, or, well, I have this situation, but how can I use it to better my environment and those around me? It's going to come down to the individual. It's funny you mentioned the the rich kid thing. I told this story just the other day. Years ago, I dated a girl who was very wealthy, or rather her parents were were very wealthy. Um, If I remember right, I think her dad made six million a year to give you a ballpark, and they had grown up that way. So, you know, pretty pretty well off. It's not bad. (laughs) Yeah, not bad, not bad. Um, so, you know, she had never bought a car. Um, she, she was not lazy. You know, she, she did have a good work ethic, went to, went to a really nice school, uh, very smart, and, you know, definitely had many of the benefits and advantages of growing up with money and took advantage of a lot of them, right, a lot of those opportunities. But there was one particular time when I used to teach drum lessons full time, and I only had a motorcycle. This was for years. All I had was a motorcycle. And it's like hurricane season. And I'm broke. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, riding a motorcycle all over town, giving drum lessons to people. And it rain or shine, I had to take off on the motorcycle. And I remember one day it was like, it's like a Wednesday at noon. And it's just torrentially raining outside. Ho- like, horrible. But I had to go to lessons. Wednesdays were my busiest lesson day. And I made like two or $300 in just this one little run that I did. And I was... I was at her house and I was getting ready to leave and she's like, why don't you just cancel? Like, look at the weather. And I remember trying to explain why like that, that isn't an option because I have to eat. Like I, ha- like, I, I don't have a choice to miss mm-hmm. this day because it's uncomfortable. Like no matter how uncomfortable it is, this is what I have to do. So if I have to put five like towels in my backpack just so I can dry off before I walk into these people's houses, which I totally did, then that's what I'm gonna do today. And there's no other choice on the table. And that was that was totally foreign to her. She couldn't believe that there was no no situation that was so bad that I was just gonna bail out. 
you know, yeah. and it was like it was like a lack of grit. Like she did not understand yeah. um, having to dig that deep. And so in certain scenarios, it would sort of come up um, where you realize, like, I don't know, there are that that rich kid ideal. You're right. It's not the money. It's more that they've they've missed over certain life lessons that people yeah. end up gathering from from that grind, you know, whatever that is. Yeah. And in many cases, it's not even their fault. Right. It's the people around them that don't challenge them in that way, because, like I said, it's, you know, it's I've met I have friends that you know I mean well so I live in South Florida right now so oh okay I didn't know you were down here crazy yeah yeah so there's a lot of you know rich people <laughs> and oh yeah there's so, a lot of money down there dude yeah, rich and, Jewish money let's be honest yeah <laughs> and some of them are really cool it, like I said it comes down to like the the people that are around them when they're a kid I mean I ate out of dumpsters as at a kid or as a kid for a certain period of my life wow. uh, when my family fell on rough times. And it wasn't like half-eaten sandwiches. It was like more like a grocery store dumpster, you know, things like that. Sure, so sure. So like it, it was packaged food, but it also wasn't like the proudest moment. Um, <laughs> but, you know, my, my family had fallen through on some really hard times, and like my dad was figuring things out, but he didn't really have like the money he needed. I had a bunch of siblings, and like we were living in uh, like right outside of D.C., and um like four kids in one bedroom and like a two bedroom house like it was kind of crusty like no AC like and I would never say that people need to experience that necessarily (laughs) but something like that is never gonna hurt you like you said like you driving around getting drenched trying to teach drum lessons like it's not ideal but it's never really actually gonna like hurt you to have that experience it's always gonna better you to push yourself a little bit closer to the brink and see what you can handle and see what you're really willing to do, what you're capable of doing. So that's why I said it's never really about the money. It's more just about the personal challenge that you put uh, forth, you know? And I think that's something cool about uh, touring and, like, those kinds of things. Like, it's always, like, a personal pet peeve of mine when someone just, like, randomly gets, like, signed to a label or something and they immediately have, like, a nice touring situation. I'm like, dude, you got to sleep on a couple of floors, like sleep in the van a little bit, just so I know that you're like invested in this. Because obviously as a freelance, you know, guy, like you've probably experienced this too. Sometimes you'll go out with an artist who has never done the rough touring thing and they kind of start to break down even when touring is going pretty well because they haven't like actually had to, they didn't know what they were getting into. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Because even sleeping in like a hotel room every night and eating at a fast food place every day, which is like the better side of touring, is still pretty draining. And that, to someone like you or I who might have done the DIY thing, might be pretty sick, you know? (laughs) You get stoked on that because you've slept in a car. But it definitely like, you'll meet people sometimes who didn't do that and they'll start to break down when touring is like at its easiest. And you're like, well, you didn't really learn how to do this yet like you should have maybe slept on a couple concrete floors just to know that you wanted to do this like just to be sure that this was for you you know and i think that applies to a lot of aspects of life it's like to be tested a little bit to make sure that this is really what you want to do you know it's really like where you want to be and so much of that struggle can be self-inflicted oftentimes it's best if it is right i mean you you wouldn't want a kid to be born into like a super problematic existence necessarily but you yeah. do want you do want to raise a kid that can go seek out problems and solve them like mm-hmm. sort of self-inflict some of that challenge and it's it's interesting man i think so much of the 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 lack of gratitude that a lot of let's just say modern people tend to have is is it's shocking sometimes as as 
and I say this knowing that you know we're two introspective people who would not have an issue listing things that we're grateful for, like things that are awesome about our lives. Um, and everybody should have that list, no matter yeah, what your life sure. looks like, right? But I heard something the other day that was so interesting. It was like, when you th- consider the amount of suffering that people were born into for all of human history, you know, consider now that one of your standards, something that is non-negotiable, is air-conditioned, silent, safe sleep. It must be a certain temperature, it must yeah. be quiet, and I must be safe, and that's mandatory. That's like a baseline for me to be happy. I gotta have that, right? And think like, think like, yeah. how many fucking millions of years was that like? Not that a maybe, thing at all. Maybe you experienced that a few times in your yeah. life that you could fall asleep safely, comfortably within a good temperature, right? I mean, just just things like that, you know? It's yeah. um, no, I love those thought experiments. Yeah. You're 100% right. Like, the the AC broke in my car the other day, and I was like, it's one of the most expensive things to get fixed in your car. And I was yeah. like, well, got to spend it. I mean, having AC in your car is really not that common of a thing until pretty recently, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I'm like, I won't drive unless I have AC. <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah, no, you're right about that. Man, so what are you doing in Florida? It's hot as shit down here, dude. You picked a bad time to show up. Yeah, so, my, well, so my family... Well, I mean, we're from Maryland, but my parents and my sister have lived here for a long time. Um, and I was living in Nashville, you know, more for touring stuff, uh, session stuff. Uh, so around COVID, like, I uh, lost all the gigs <laughs> that I had, obviously, like anyone else. And um, a friend of mine that has a store down here, she offered me a job. So I was like, all right, I'll come and hang out with some family for a little while. And then miraculously, like, I set up a studio set up down here and... Um, a bunch of my friends up in Nashville have been like hitting me up for uh, remote gigs and stuff to track for people, and um, now it's shaping up to have a tour in the in the fall and things like that. And that tour is actually leaving from like uh, Miami, so it sort of just made more sense. Uh, I I am going up to Nashville in two days um, for some. Okay, cool. Yeah, for some you know like some work up there. Uh, so you know I, I kind of go back and forth, but I'd say I'm based here now. It is definitely the worst time to be here, but. Um, I, I like Florida. Nashville, uh, right before COVID, we got hit with like that crazy tornado that like decimated like three of the five boroughs. And then I was out of power for a while, and then the pandemic hit like two days later, so I couldn't go anywhere. And then another storm came through and took the power out for almost two weeks. So then I was like, had no internet, electricity, or anything, and I couldn't go anywhere. And then like the riots started, <laughs> and I was like, it's getting. I was like, "Why am I here? Because I'm not getting enough work to even like make this happen at the yeah, time." Yeah, yeah. Um, and then to make it comically even like crazier, I found out two things. One, my house had become infested with brown recluse spiders, Oof. and two, that there was black mold growing inside of my walls. So I was like, "All right, maybe I just take a step away <laughs> for yeah. a second. Let, Listen let, to the universe. Dude. Yeah, let this take a breather, <laughs> and I'll circle back when things make more sense." So. That was, uh, I probably never had such a clear sign uh, in my life that maybe it was time to try something else for a minute. <laughs> yeah, dude, brown um, recluse is pretty clear. Yeah. Black mold, so, too. For sure. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I took a little breather. I like Florida, but it is, uh, it's a little nuts right now. You're, you're, uh, you're from Orlando, or like that's where you live, I know, but is that where you're originally from? So I grew up in Maryland, actually. Um, oh, we talked about this. Yeah, yeah. We talked about this. I remember you had said Jessup. Was that right? Yep, yeah, Jessup. Yeah. So I was from um, like 
Charles County sort of area, La Plata, yeah. Waldorf, about an hour from Virginia, like super southern Maryland. Yeah. Um, yeah, grew up there and then went to college down here when I was 17. I graduated early, just absolutely hated high school. Um, so on my 18th birthday, I got an apartment and immediately started school. And um, yeah, I went to I went to rehab in Utah. So I lived out there for a little while yeah. and then moved back to Maryland just briefly. But a huge majority of my adult life has been in Florida. Um, and it's a, it's a weird statement. I describe it as like, I don't know. Florida's just like pretty good at everything. It's not great at anything. Yeah. But like, it, it, you know, you know what I mean? It's like very, it's like 100%. slightly above average in every category, which has its own value, right? It's not like we've got one particular horrible thing about Florida, except weather. I guess weather would be our one like, yeah, it just sucks here sometimes, you know? Yeah. Which is funny because like the weather is the thing that like tourists love about Florida the most, right? It's like, oh, yeah. the sunshine and the ridiculous heat but yeah uh it's it, it's interesting to me that you went to rehab out in utah because south florida mm -hmm. is the rehab capital of the country it, it is it, it yeah. definitely so weird story there i've actually done a three-part series on this podcast about it oh. but uh, i had crazy insurance through my mom all growing mm -hmm. up she was um i worked for the machinist union which is like airline mechanics anyway their union is like outrageous and so my insurance was effectively like free that that was my relationship to like the medical industry i paid for nothing ever just a really cool like weird union benefit that i had growing up and i went to rehab at 21 and i found out quickly that i could go to any rehab in the country like price didn't matter i could go to any rehab so i googled celebrity rehabs and that's actually where i went um oh, yeah. i went went to one that was like Dude, it was like 70 G's a month. Like it was absolutely outrageous. My Damn. mom or I could not have afforded it. We yeah, were yeah, not for sure. rich at all. Um, but it was just an option on the table. The catch is you can only go once. They don't pay for you to like perpetually go in and out of rehab. Yeah. So I was like, if I'm going, why not go to the craziest, highest end place that I can possibly find? Uh, so I went to a place called Cirque Lodge, which, oh dude, just absolutely outrageous i had my own horse they had a fleet of hummers they had a helicopter it, it was like i mean dude it was it was insane insane and there were pros and cons to it um but yeah that's why i went out to utah because that's where that particular place was but you're right utah and south florida tend to have like all the rehabs in the country yeah. it's very weird very weird yeah for sure yeah, I think it's uh, it's awesome. I haven't. You said it was a three part series that you did on it. I haven't seen all three parts um, uh, of it, but I, I did uh, uh, check that out, and I and I and I heard like a good chunk of your story. I think it's really cool um, that you've like I like I said earlier, like opened up that part of your life like to the internet because you know in the drummer world, not to just like totally hype you up, but like. I obviously know a lot of drummers and a ton of them like look up to you and like so many of them and uh, I think it's really cool that you felt comfortable like sharing that struggle with them because it really does pull the curtain back on that like larger than life sort of uh, mentality um, to let people know that you can have endured something so challenging and like you said rise from the ashes you know come back uh, to the point where like you have a very successful you know like music career and um and also just to show, because what I love about the podcast is like, you know, teaching is one thing, but you can tell it's not so much like scripted, but there is like a lesson plan, right? So, you know, like your words are chosen 
And to see uh, just sort of like the really well-spoken, thoughtful person that you are and that you came out of that experience being uh, is super cool and super valuable. And I think that, um, in my opinion, it's definitely one of the coolest things that you've done is like, and I I do plan to finish that, you know, that uh, series. But yeah, no, I think that's... That's that's really cool. That whole story is really interesting and not something that I honestly necessarily would have guessed about you having like seen your videos. So like was that yeah. uh, weird? Um, like obviously, like I asked you earlier if it was like comfortable, you know, like speaking on camera about that. But just in general, is that something that at a certain point in your life you felt the need to hide more from people in your life and gradually became more comfortable with? Or were you always just like, yeah, this is how things are? There was definitely a period where when it was more recent like within a year or two or three years of it happening it was definitely more embarrassing because it like you know telling someone that you went to rehab last year is is synonymous with saying very recently my life was super fucked up right so like it you know it's it's the the distance definitely makes it easier to talk about but i don't know you, you do have to get a sense of pride to operate in the world after going to rehab because just showing up to a bar or a show where people are drinking and saying, I don't drink, like, oh man, you, that's already weird. It's, mm-hmm. it's already peculiar that you don't drink at all. And the faster you can get used to that and just being like, no, I don't drink and I went to rehab and it's fine. Like, yeah, and, and not feeling weird about saying that, man, it's so much easier to get through the world. If you're like, playing little dodgy games of like no i'm okay i don't really want to drink like oh come on man like no i'm okay like you you have to tell people sometimes like i do not drink because alcohol almost made me kill myself and then they're like oh okay so sorry and then they actually respond to that and it becomes easier so i learned to do that pretty quickly but there was definitely a period of a year or two where, where it was um you know there's a sense of shame in that for sure because it's very self-inflicted you know like i did i was responsible for pretty much all of that not my predisposition to yeah. abusing alcohol or anything I mean, like that yeah for sure but, but you kind a lot of, of, lot of fucked yeah. up decisions in there too you know <laughs> yeah you did kind of like i mean we all do that we kind of mastermind our own <laughs> our own failure a little bit um, yeah yeah I mean, that's an interesting just life lesson in there, just in general, just taking immediate full ownership of yourself, like you said, just kind of makes it easier because that's the inevitable endpoint anyway, right? You are who you are. Yeah. So you're going to yeah. have to find a way to be that person. And if you're not necessarily proud of that person, well, start figuring out how to be, you know, because... Yeah. Uh, well, so, dude, it's, it's really interesting that this would come up. Like, so at my wedding and since then, I've actually started drinking again. Mm-hmm. And this was a, I mean, I spent a year thinking about this before I actually did it. It was like not a careless decision at all. And it's interesting, man. There are still leftover parts of my brain that function exactly the same as they did 10 years ago. Like not everything's the same. A lot of it is is definitely different. Uh, my body doesn't react to it the same. There's there's a number of things that are very different, but there's weird leftover parts that are just exactly the same. It's, it's made me think a lot about, um, I don't know, like how much of your psychology are you doomed to? Like this is right. just how your brain works and no amount of therapy yeah. or introspection or experience is going to alter these particular parts of your brain. And it, so that's kind of what I'm doing now. I'm exploring like what I, what I honestly can't seem to change and what I can. And it's a very weird mix. It's like 
there there's elements of of it that I can definitely control that I didn't have before. Mm-hmm. And then there's other little familiar voices in there where I'm like, that's the same motherfucker from ten years ago. Like he sounds exactly the same. Like <laughs> listen to that asshole. Like yeah. it's it's strange, man. It's strange. So. I don't know. It's been a very interesting psychological experiment for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That is uh, something, you know, uh, so I have obviously living down here. Like I said, I mean, the the rehab capital, I recently relocated here, but I lived here seven years before moving to Nashville. Um, okay. So I obviously, you know, a lot of my like friends in my late teen years, early twenties were made here. And uh, a lot of them had, you know, gone to rehab. Uh, not obviously when we were teenagers, but you know, upon coming back and stuff. And um, opiates, I take it, South Florida. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But um, so, and yeah, I've, I've, I have, you know, friends that have like gotten to a point. I have a friend who's now twelve years uh, sober who now will kind of, you know, like smoke weed here or there, or like you know, drink, dabble, drink here, yeah, dabble and whatever, and um. There's sometimes there's almost like an even more intense fear of uh, judgment from their friends. Like they're not allowed to do that anymore. And this is not something that I would be able to speak on because while I am 100% sure that I'm an addict by nature, I have like aggressively avoided uh, substances as a result of my like known okay. obsessive behavior and um, my desire to like abuse everything. Uh, so I'm terrified of all that stuff, but I, um, it wouldn't be my place like to, uh, speak on, but I do think it's interesting because like, like you said, you're, this was like 10 years ago, right? You went to rehab, like your conditions, while you still have some of those old behaviors, your conditions are different. Your life is different. You have a wife now, you have someone to help you navigate this. You have 10 years of experience. You have, um, 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 accountability to your uh, music school and to you know the various uh, businesses that you've started, you know friends, things like that. And while that doesn't necessarily erase your natural maybe uh, inclinations or sort of uh, bad judgment, maybe <laughs> like <laughs> on certain on certain things. Sure, sure. Um, you have a different set of tools to uh, navigate that. So it, it makes sense to open that book a little bit and sort of reassess, not uh, recklessly, but reassess, like what is Adam today think about this and what is he maybe able to handle? And I think that in some ways that might be, I've thought about this before with mental health and with you know drugs, alcohol, things like that. In some ways, I think that might be necessary for long-term success is to allow yourself the or to um, give yourself permission rather to uh, reassess things as you go along in life because I think it can become extremely defeating to lock yourself in a permanent box for your entire life. Like that's where a lot of my panic comes from. Even with you know jobs, things like that that are maybe less intense as maybe a drug or alcohol problem. But to be able to say like let's take this in week and you know week increments at first then year increments maybe five year increments but to say like from now until the time they put me in the ground (laughs) this is how i gotta be i think that can in some ways be uh counterproductive uh to long-term success with something because it might allow uh it might give you the it might give you a higher risk of uh just kind of giving up there i can't do this forever uh you know it's it's looking too far on the road i feel trapped so yeah. yeah, that's very interesting. 
Yeah, it's it's almost like what you're describing is the like that feeling of doom, which which in rehab when they tell you you're an alcoholic forever, you know, you do feel that that sense of like I don't know, you're trapped, you're stuck in this box, and I think I, I have definitely done that with. I'm sure you've experienced this. You ever had a flash of anxiety when you're like starting the day? And then all of a sudden, the day becomes an anxious day. That's what today is. Today, mm-hmm. I, today, it's anxious yep. me. Even though, like, dude, it was like five uh, seconds that you know you went to grab your toothbrush and you had a weird little thought, and now all of a sudden your your day is like mm-hmm. fucking doomed. You know, hundred percent. And it's weird, man. I think I've, I've that word doom is sort of just like the idea of being trapped in something perpetually negative, some state or mode of being that you're stuck in, and whether it's alcoholism or anxiety or depression. To me, I look at it now as like you. You are doomed to the recipe that you got, like your weird mix of neurological soup going on in your head. You are kind of doomed to that. Like that, that is, there's a lot of that that you, that you don't seem to be able to change, but like your responses to, to the world around you, like you do have a tremendous amount of control. It's hard to say how much yeah. of it you do control. Like, I don't know, do you think there's a version of reality where we have depression, anxiety, and suicidal thought, free sage. Does that guy exist? Is there a version where, where these problems aren't real at all? Um, yeah, I, for sure. I mean, I do think that it comes down to a perspective. It's a, it's, it's something that I put on every day when, when I get up, right? Like, it's almost my first thought. And I think that's where, like, the things like therapy can really help. And therapy can be a lot of things. Therapy can be this conversation right now. But, you know, really recognizing something and, and going into it open-mindedly, objectively, and calmly. Um, I think every day that you work on something like that, you can shed your need to identify yourself as that thing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think the short answer to that is I don't think I, – I personally don't think that, like, you have to be a certain way. Now – I guess I could be hypocritical to say that I do think that there are uh, maybe chemical, uh, not compounds, that's what I'm looking for, chemical balances maybe that might make me more likely to be a certain way, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the way I have to be. I do think that I choose to indulge those things and lean fully into them. Um, because like you said, like something as simple as waking up and having that weird thought and it just totally ruining your day is a uh, side effect for me personally of being extremely obsessive compulsive. I'm going to grab a thought. I could get up and be like, oh, that was weird. My leg felt like it moved kind of slowly when I got out of bed. And now the whole day I'm like, am I having a stroke? (laughs) Right? Like I'm obsessing over something that really was absolutely pointless. And now I'm projecting it into my conscious minute by minute reality. And I don't have to do that. Like, I do fully believe there's a version of me <laughs> that could just be, like, you know, smart about it. No disrespect to people that struggle with that, but just kind of more intelligent. Sure, sure. <laughs> and look at it and be like, yeah, that's an insignificant thought. Put it out of your head. But I do that, and then a little, like, crazy me crawls back in and is like, let me look at that again real quick and see what happened. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I don't think that we have to be the way that we are. I think that we do consciously and subconsciously choose to be that way. Um, that's just my personal belief. Yeah, yeah. I almost look at it as like whatever your whatever the thing is that's going to break in your brain first. Like like whether it's a, you know, <laughs> if, if, if it's a, for a lot of people it's anxiety, it's a really common. Well, like if we yeah. if we take a person who is perfectly healthy 
and we start applying pressure to their life in some way. Like you start really trying this person. Everybody like the machine blows out somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. For guys like you and I, it's DPDR anxiety. Um, for other people, it could be, you know, maybe substance abuse would be another category, but like everybody has some some part of them that will break under enough pressure. Mm -hmm. Some people just never have enough pressure to find out what that is, but everybody yeah. has a thing. And mm -hmm. I think in, in that concept of doom, like, it, or being stuck, I think that's one of the things, it's almost like a natural law. Like, like there, there's no version of you where, there might be a version of you that can operate as though you don't have anxiety and you don't feel depression. But if at any point in time, enough pressure got applied to you, you know where the machine blows out. That's where mm -hmm. it's gonna go. It's anxiety and depression. Yeah. That's, that's where I go wrong every time. And I think that's the part that we're stuck with is okay. whatever, right? Like whatever ends up blowing out in the machine, that is your weak, weak point. And you might sometimes play like a, what's that gopher game where the little moles pop up and you whack them? Oh uh, whack yeah, whack-a-mole, whack yeah. <laughs> right, so you might play whack-a-mole where like, if you solve this problem, it manifests in a slightly different version. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes that happens, but when you get old enough, like you know which fucking mole is the problem. It's that mole, It all it's just that one, right? That, <laughs> that ends up popping up. And I think to me, that's what, that's what we're stuck with. You're yeah. stuck with that same little mole that's gonna keep mm -hmm. popping up in that same spot. And there might be some version of you where you can live as though that mole isn't real. But if, it, if things fell apart, you know exactly where, what, what's gonna pop its head up now. And to me, knowing that, knowing like you're the weakest point of your entire psyche, like, like the, the part of your machine that's gonna fail first, that alone is a powerful thing to know because yeah. that, that's what you put your attention on. That's what you focus on. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. but with all that said, you're still kind of doomed, kind of, you know, like <laughs> our machines bit, yeah. are gonna blow out in that same spot every time, dude. Yeah, I think, uh, I see, I see your point there. I, I exercise my right to revise my opinion, right? It's like the meme, like, <laughs> normalize changing your opinion. Um, no, I, I I do agree with that, that it is going to be your the natural, like, fault line, I guess, inside of you is going to be that thing. And I think what I'm talking about is, like, you can choose to weaken that thing significantly by not indulging it. And it's like it's like the feeding the right wolf thing, right? Like, the wolf yeah. you feed is the one that gets strong. So, like, I think that I can starve that wolf um, where it becomes very weak. But, yeah, I would have to agree with you based on what you just said that I do think that that is, like, that is a bit of, like, a predisposition that I... I was going to break in this way because life is kind of rough. Like as much as I'm I'm grateful to be here, <laughs> life is kind of brutal and you are going to have to uh, learn how to manage your own particular kind of uh, fragility <laughs> a little bit because <laughs> we're all a little bit uh, fragile. Um, and, you know, for some people it's going to be self-abuse they're going to go to other people it's going to be abusing others like it's it's going to be whatever exactly. but yeah you i i do agree with you that in general people are broken in almost the same way but how that manifests itself is going to be unique to the uh environment that maybe they were uh formed in <laughs> a little or bit. even yeah. even to the the individual right like what if if you were raised in another country speaking a different language and a different culture, just your neurological recipe would produce 
the exact mm-hmm. type of negative emotion, no matter what your environment, right? Like, I wonder how fixed that stuff is. Like, I, like I would have been an alcoholic in any lifetime, right? Like, you know, like with this this particular recipe that I have up here, for some reason, that's how the machine blows out. You know, it's yeah, um, yeah but it's it's. I feel like you you. Well, mental health in general will do this to people, but it makes you very individualistic where you realize that it's it's really about getting to know yourself because yeah. your solutions are they always seem to be customized when it comes to all things mental health and just structuring your life. Um, I'm a huge individualist in that sense. I'm really not a fan of grouping people together by almost any parameter whatsoever. I really yeah. don't like that, whether it's even if it's race or sexual identity or you know like like the people are way 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 too individual to do that most of the time um you know the broad category certainly makes sense but i don't know man i think uh part of being a a healthy introspective individual is really having that that perception that you are an extremely unique person you know and there are there's tons of overlaps it's not like the groups don't exist necessarily yeah. but ultimately your perfect life is perfect exclusively for you and it's like sure. it's that, that big responsibility like you have to figure this out you know yeah for sure I, well there's so many different contributing factors right because it's like we talk about like the way that you're raised maybe affecting you know how you process things whatever but then there's like you said like the country you're from the race you are the gender you are the county you're from even like the road you're on like the house you live in the the way the sun hits your particular window in the morning and what time it wakes you up how that affects your brain chemistry because that happened you know like it's so so specific to the point where like it's insane to even like begin to think about all the different things that have contributed or influenced your behavior in this exact moment right now uh, that yeah, it has to be individualistic if I ever tried to apply someone else's solution to my problem I think I would ultimately fail yeah. um, and that is why I think fully accepting the terms of your condition, whatever it is, open-mindedly and almost joyously, I think is extremely important. Um, which goes back to why I was saying earlier, I think it's great that you have done that with your show and and everything to be like, this is like the way that I am. It's not necessarily what little baby me wanted, <laughs> but <laughs> it's not too terrible, you know, because otherwise you haven't even given yourself the permission to, you know, customize uh, your solution to the person that you currently are. So yeah, yeah, yeah. There's okay. One one last little rabbit hole. I'll, I'll take us to, take us down. <laughs> an, an interesting one on this topic of of individualism. Um, are you familiar with the phrase? It's a it's a pretty woke far, far left ish phrase. But intersectionality. Uh, I'm not super familiar. No. So it's like if you have oppressed groups of people, which definitely exist, uh, that people could be members of multiple of those groups at the same time. Okay. So for example, you take, let's just say that we, we were to say that black people as a whole are an oppressed group of people, and then you could say women as a whole are an oppressed group of people. Then you could say people in wheelchairs are an oppressed group of people. And you could go through, you know, we could say gay people as well. And let's just say we have those four groups, that it's black, women, handicapped, and gay. And so among those groups, which we could definitely find examples of oppression in each one of those very Mm -hmm. broad categories, what if we have a black gay woman in a wheelchair? That's, uh, that's intersectionality, right? Where they would objectively be the most oppressed person. So now let's, let's group them together 
and say that's the new group. It's gay black women in wheelchairs. Now, among them, we could find the most depressed person, right? Maybe it's someone with the lowest IQ or the person who was born um, in the most abject poverty among mm-hmm, yeah. that group. And what you quickly find is that if you're playing the uh, like the oppression Olympics, let's just say, what you'll find is the most op- uh, oppressed person you could find is the individual. There's one person even though all of those weird negative things do intersect at certain areas, right, yeah. ultimately you're led back to the most the most depressed person in the world is an individual, right? And it's, so it's it's like this philosophical way to think like you can think about things in in group structures and group categories, but ultimately like they're like you are the most important thing to think about in all of these different recipes. You might be a member of ten different groups, like I'm a member of the alcoholics and you're a member of the people who have thought about killing themselves before but right like you can group yourself that way (laughs) but to me all all of these roads lead back to individualism that ultimately it's your set of problems is so terminally unique that there's no reason to put yourself in that larger category so for me to say that I'm an alcoholic is is dramatically oversimplified and for me to throw you in a category as like guy who wanted to kill himself that's dramatically oversimplified yeah, yeah for sure you know yeah that's an interesting concept i've heard that term and i had i mean obviously i can find context clues for what it means but i've never thought about it in that exact uh context before but yeah no it's a it's 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 a rare example of like me sort of celebrating or admitting to terminal uniqueness because most of the time I really try to convince people that they're not terminally unique. <laughs> but okay, interesting. Because, you know, because like, and you're kind of bringing up a few different things in my mind right now, which is that like both are kind of true in a way because like- I see where you, you're going. You're right. Yeah. Well, because you do share broad experiences with not only a large number of people, but in some, on some topics with everyone, right? Like we all share certain things, so we're not terminally unique, but you can refine that down to, like you said, like black, gay, woman in a wheelchair, and now I'm not those things, right? So like that person becomes more and more terminally unique the deeper you go into that, which is really a, a perspective I've never explored before, is like being sort of... Uh, selective about the pieces of uh, your own uniqueness that you indulge and empower yourself with to sort of sure. Uh, well, it's so interesting. Bec- well, and you're right that both are simultaneously true because let's just say you were dealing with guilt and shame. You are definitely not the first person to deal with guilt right, and shame. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But but as we as we invite more factors in, where we say, okay, paint me the whole picture of exactly who you are your environment, your experiences, your IQ level, your personality disposition, down to the neurons in your brain, like eventually we get to this weird, ultra unique custom person somehow, you know, it's it's strange. And I, the, the, you're right though, man, there are arguments to be made that you're not actually that that special. Sometimes people need to hear that, especially if they go really hard down the victim, victim rabbit hole. Oh yeah. Right. Those are the people that really need to hear like, hey, dude, you're not you're not the first person to have a bad day. Like, it's okay, you know. Yeah, that's where typically that's where typically I like I'm against the whole like indulging my own terminal uh, uniqueness, because I think until you overcome a victim mindset with anything, regardless of how horribly victimized you were, Mm -hmm. you're stuck. Yes. Like because this is something that I think about a lot is like becoming a victim to yourself in response 
to what someone else has done to victimize you. So a context of that would be, to put that into context, like I was abused violently as a child. I was a victim of that. I got to a point in my adult life where I was suicidal and sick, not necessarily because of that, but in reaction, in a very long chain reaction to the behaviors I learned then. And I was like in this victim mindset spiral of like, I didn't choose to be this way, this happened to me. And then I realized like, no, 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 no. I'm a victim of my own actions now because like I have, yeah, I haven't been abused for like 16 years, right? So that is, I'm physically, logically, analytically, (laughs) objectively not actually being victimized by anyone but myself now. Like I am going to bed, punishing myself, keeping myself alert, concerned, nauseous, whatever it may be because of what I am projecting, what I am summoning. And, um, that's where I I try to stray away from that like terminally unique, like poor, poor me, this has happened to me and I didn't want it to be that way. I'm so, uh, like I said, like terminally unique in this way. No one else has had to experience this and be like, no, everyone is struggling with something that happened to them, but I am more so unique in the way that I'm choosing to currently weaponize it against myself. Sure, yeah, you're <laughs> and, right, yeah, better perspective. And that's the thing. Yeah, so I think like it's it's interesting because today, right now, is the first time you've ever or anyone's ever presented to me a a perspective where being uh, terminally unique might actually be uh, beneficial to you. And I think it is is good to value both perspectives and selectively sort of switch between them because sure. it can be simultaneously very empowering and also very hindering, uh, depending on how you choose to use that uh, sort of. Uh, um, uh, paradoxical truth. Well, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we made it all the way to victimhood because really, you're right. That is when people don't need to hear the, a concept that you are in fact terminally unique because it's like they've they've maladapted to that way of thinking. Like, well, maybe you are, but not in not in the way you think about it, right? If it's a perpetual victim, right. and I think people need to get just on the topic of victimhood. There's, um, you know, I had to explain this to someone I know who who lost their job. And recently, and um, after being unemployed for quite a while, it became where they would introduce themselves, and within a couple minutes, that was the topic that they were talking about, that they lost their job. Mm, And you saw them identifying with this negative thing that had happened to them. It was like this person began assuming the identity of the victim, where it's like actually who they are. Like if people met you right. and within two minutes you're all of a sudden talking about your history with mental health, it's like, uh, like you, you, you're now stepping into this identity that is that person, yeah, right? And yeah, and yeah you, in a poisonous way, you believe you're so terminally unique that that's what people need to know about you is what has happened yeah, to exactly. you, right? Yeah, exactly. You start to, yeah, you, you, you sort of define your own value by the fact that you've been victimized by someone else. And I think like... Ultimately, like that is the that's the ultimate like self destruct button. It is. <laughs> like to me, like when you allow yourself to exist in that state for too long, because being a victim of something is obviously not your choice, right? And you are allowed and encouraged to recognize that and to even publicly admit sometimes like this, you know, I think about like women who have been, you know, hurt, right? Like victims of, you know, rape, things like that a lot of times they're shamed, encouraged not to speak about it, right? 
uh, and so they're self-conscious about it. They feel guilt. They feel judgment. And ultimately, they should not feel those things, right? Because they're not even a part of it. It's the person that hurt them that is entirely responsible and entirely guilty. Correct. They were truly victimized. Were, Correct. Right. They were merely like a uh, bystander of that thing. So they should feel none of the guilt. But, and this is not a judgmental statement, is to say like for each one of those people, my hope for them and for myself and everyone who has been a victim of any kind of abuse is that they will recognize that fact at the moment, relieve themselves of that guilt, and then release themselves from the victimhood that they felt of that thing so that they don't carry it and 30 years later are still a victim of that thing that ultimately has not happened to them now for 40 years or whatever and rob themselves of, of, of that, you know, like 40 years. So that's an extreme example, but... It's a good example. It's, say, it's the perfect example of true victimization and how it affects people. Yeah. Yeah. And so I try to apply that to even the, the smallest things in my life of just like, oh, this should have... Like, like being fired, uh, like, you know, like last year, like I spiraled about that and then I was like, you know... Like you said, it's like going into like a job interview and talking about that, or it's like it's kind of like going on a date with a really like amazing person who you don't know and talking about how your ex cheated on you the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> and like yeah, dude. almost trying to prove your value by being a victim. Be like, you know, yeah. it sucks. Like I hope that you'll take care of me the right way because no one else did. It's like you're ruining something potentially great by focusing on the negative and victimizing yourself in that moment. It's very hindering. Yeah. Uh, it's a trap that we all fall into, and I definitely have, but I, I try to um, arrest as soon as I spot it now is that victim mentality. And it's, it's extra tricky when there's a ratio, like who you are is partially formed by what happened to you, right? Like if you were to tell me the whole story of your life, mental health is definitely a chunk yeah. of that. Some of the, the stories of you being victimized definitely do play a role, and they're important, but like the... I don't know. It's a sliver. Yeah. It's a small, small sliver of, of what that is. And yeah, this sure. is why I'm like, yeah, this is why I reject a whole lot of the group thinking because people think that, and <laughs> no, they're, I'm going to give one more dangerous statement, for example, like being, okay, let me start, start easy. Being white is not a personality, right? Like that doesn't tell me anything about who you are at all. You know, another one, though, is a little, little more controversial. Being gay is not a personality. Right. That it, it tells me maybe a little bit more about who you are, but what percentage? Like, if, if it's an immutable characteristic, like, I don't know, maybe 2% of yeah. who you are is who, who you like to sleep with. Yeah. So that, that's not an, it's not an identity. It's a sliver of an identity. Um, I think race is like that. I think all these groups we can place ourselves in tell a very tiny fraction of the story. Yeah. But just like in with victimhood, people like to say that, let's just say the fact that I was uh, fired or abused in some way, that becomes in their own mind like 95% of their identity yeah. when it's like, hey man, it's not that it's unimportant, but it's a sliver. That's a tiny chunk of who you are. For sure. And I see people do this in any group, any large category, whether it's their race or their sexual orientation or their trauma, that people will use the group to project an identity as though that's a complete picture when it's in fact just the tiniest little slice of the pie. Yeah, well, it becomes more of an identity the more people on both sides uh, pay into it, right? Like, give value to it. Yeah. Like, if you're gay, it might not be that big a part of your identity. If someone reacts a certain way to it, it's a bigger part. If you react to them reacting to it, now it's a bigger part. And at, Correct, at the end, until all, we're just screaming about being gay, and that's not really Exactly, and now thing. that's the only thing that anyone really knows you to be is, like, this <laughs> Correct, gay person. Yeah. That, and so, it, it ultimately, yeah, it does come down to, like how you're like what you're choosing to feed within yourself and i think that there are elements of 
or there are things that you can feed, obviously, that will make you a really great person or a really special person. There's elements that can completely kneecap you <laughs> um, mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. obsess too much or pay too much value to the things that aren't necessarily important. And yeah, it all, all you know, ultimately, like, like you said, they're all tiny, tiny little things. And uh, I try now, and I think everyone should try. It's, I'm not great at this, <laughs> so I'm definitely not an expert on it, but to diversify as much as I can with the thoughts I have and the experiences I have and the things I say and I do to be, you know, um, just a more well-rounded and, like, healthier person that can offer more to those around me rather than... Because, I mean, I will admit, like, I'm the first to admit, like, I was a full-blown, like, wallower. <laughs> like, that's part, of yeah. why, that's part of why I got so sick because I woke up every day and I was like boy, I wish I wasn't me, you know, it sucks that I had to be this way. Um, and uh, I, lo- I love to wallow. There's so much safety in it, right? Because like you're wrapped in everyone else's sympathy. You're given um, forgiveness from everyone else. You manage their expectations by setting them really low and being like, I typically can't accomplish anything because I'm always so wounded and in so much pain. <laughs> So you set the bar really low and you feel like you can't fail. If you come into something seeming high functioning and healthy and like alert and checked in and ready to go, and then you mess something up, it seems worse in a way, right? You're, you're setting everyone's yeah. expectations high and then you're you're actually aiming low. Yeah, um, absolutely. People do this all the time. Yeah, so there's a lot of safety in like wallowing and you know acting maybe more wounded than you sometimes even feel, but uh, sort of summoning that and projecting it and making that your reality and. Uh, yeah, I, it's something that I've struggled with for a long time. Hopefully, hopefully getting away from it now. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Dude, this is an awesome conversation, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, man. Uh, seriously, thanks so much for, you know, um, um, like, I, like I've been watching, like I said, your show for a little bit. I've missed some of them here and there, but yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Dude, absolutely, man. All right. Appreciate you guys watching. We'll catch you next week. Sure. Thanks, guys.